Welcome to this week's BDE. Chuck is back. He had an absence with his prostate issue. Yeah, dude. How was surgery, weeks. bro? <laughs> I'm okay. I already missed the chair. <laughs> Chuck, is, Chuck is out living life. He's at the Super Bowl. I don't know where you were last week. Tell your ride. Tell your ride. That's right. Yeah. So I have a little bit of we're living. We're putting the team on our back, grinding away, making the show happen, and Chuck's out there just jet setting. Well, I have a little bit of a living my best life story that I'll go ahead and share real quick. Oh boy. So let's hear it. So I call my best friend Fish. And, you know, when you get fired from a private equity firm, usually what they do is they buy you out of your investments or they at least, if you can't agree on value, they at least freeze so you don't mm. have to make future capital calls. Well, unfortunately, that was not part of my agreement. No, they're making capital calls. So I had that hanging over my head, you know, as the largest single individual investor in a fund that, you know, if they called all that money, I could have literally been broke. So I've kind of had that hanging over my head the last couple of years. Fortunately, I was able to sell my interest and I got out of it. So I'm talking to my best friend, Fish, and I said, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just until my birthday in September, I'm just going to live my best life. And then in September, I'll figure out money. Do I need to get another job? Love do I it. need to cut it back or whatever? And Fish looks at me and goes, dude, don't tell anybody on the planet except me that you haven't been living your best life for the last <laughs> three years. So oops. Um, Sorry. <laughs> so we, uh, no, we carried the team for you though. No, y'all did. Ratings yeah. were only down 37%. I thought they would have been down. I know. More, I mean, this is not ESPN numbers or Walt Disney bullshit. I mean, 37% is okay, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, we're, we, we covered. That's like 30 people. <laughs> <laughs> Both of them. Your mom and dad didn't watch this yeah. week, Chuck. All right, let's jump in. So Pioneer... There was a rumor out that they were buying range resources. Pioneer crash, range resources jumped up, I don't know, whatever, 12% or all this. Uh, Pioneer actually came out quickly with a denial. Mark, what does this mean? You're public company guy. Well, we've seen this before. I think it was a fairly tedious earnings season. That was, the, I think, the biggest slug of E&P earnings over last week. So there were quite a few. Uh, we you know, we, we've seen rumors pop up, sometimes involving Pioneer in the past. And so, you know, whether this actually goes anywhere or not, who knows, but it does raise some, some interesting kind of crossroads questions, I guess, as we sit here and talk about where the industry is dealing with capital discipline, returns to shareholders, ESG, maybe portfolio diversification and inventory I mean, duration. Pioneer issues. back in the day used to be pretty diverse in their <laughs> assets, right? In the basins that they operated in. Yeah. And hopefully it used to be a problem by some analysts, ho Mark. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in full context here, I had an earlier career experience of working the Alaska North slope. So my very Exxon view was that independence didn't belong on the slope because of you know, the lead times. What an asshole, that, man. <laughs> anyway, Pioneer was, uh, had, had pretty wide dispersion for a company at size at the time. They were in South Africa. They were in Tunisia, Argentina, Gabon, uh, some other places. And they had taken this interest, um, on the North slope. So I think I put in print that they were suffering from strategic ADD and, Regretted at the moment I hit send on the note. But anyway, they were pretty good sports. And what it. did Mr. Sheffield have to say <laughs> about that? Right. He invited me to the analyst uh, retreat in Cabo. Oh, nice. Hey, there you go. 
Yeah. Not not to be seen ever again, <laughs> Mark Meyer. But, That's right. No, but so do you think there was any truth to the rumor? Because at least my experience is a discussion happened in some way, shape, or form of something and it may not have been going anywhere, but that that's kind of been my experience when stuff like this happens. I feel happens like in, in oil and gas M and A, there tends to be like the transaction happens. There doesn't tend to be like a lot of pre rumors. Is that is that the case in public M and A? There's a lot of you know throwing stuff up against the wall to see what sticks, and you know trying to bring ideas forward forward to management teams. I, I never worked on the banking side of the house, but my inclination is or observations were there's a lot of, Hey, this is a good idea. No one else has ever thought of. And, um, you know, just more strategic conversations, obviously hoping to manifest in a transaction, but I've worked inside like for M and a, I mean, being in venture capital, we sometimes report up to the M and a teams. They're always looking at deals and it's, it's usually, Usually, sometimes they have a deal that they've always wanted to do, and it just gets shelved until the price of oil comes down, whatever. Yeah. And you, th- you think about um, some of these deals. I, um, so it doesn't surprise me that they're always looking. And the bankers, they have nothing to do. That's their job is to freaking promote yeah. acquisition, right? Um, so why, why, to, Chucky? Why, why, would, why, would range res- <laughs> why would range resources make sense for Pioneer, though? I mean, you have a company that's a – Pure play gas operator, at least to my knowledge. I don't think that think so, they only operate up in the Marcellus, right? Yeah. So $2 gas. So arguably you're buying cheap. Absolutely. It's going to yeah. get into some, I'm sure Mark's going to talk about just what is actual inventory out there. You know, do you really have 15 years of inventory in the Permian or is it like, oops, we need to find something, something else to do. And then, you know, at the end of the day, Doing a deal, getting bigger, theoretically, cost of capital goes down, scale, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think, and I like to think about things in these kind of bigger picture um, frameworks, one of which is, okay, and we talked about it last couple of weeks, do we need to bring Chuck up to speed? He, yeah. he follows, he watches our show. So, <clears throat> you know, EQT has been playing a pretty explicit long game in, in LNG. You know, does does Pioneer see that as a potential kind of strategic pivot where they need to either establish or reestablish a portfolio position that, you know, places them in the thick metal of that competition? That That's a two and two equals 20, but it's – I think it's something to think about given the dynamics of North American gas markets and what's going on globally – in the midst of this energy crunch of the last couple of years and the role that LNG is going to play. Absolutely. I mean, look so, at, look at YL. They, they, you know, they promoted, uh, to shell CEO, the guy that was running the gas business globally. So I think, I think as, as I've said, I'm long, I've been long gas for a while. Yeah. I don't want to speak for yeah, BD. the one that sits next to you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I didn't even eat beans. Well, I, I did last night. I hear so Ranger get nostalgic because I had this like, just this money train that I used to have with range and Hillcourt because they both had bad strings of casing <laughs> up in the Marcellus. And so I got called all the time to come run these casing patches and 
<clears throat> I remember Range got to the point their their superintendent was like Colin, like we've done these a lot, we've got pretty good at them. Do we really need you up here to run them? And I was like, Doc, why are you trying to take money? Seriously, dude, out of my pocket. <laughs> the other issue is, you know, we've we've kind of come full circle with the pure play model. That was a that was the by far favorite portfolio construction up until three years ago. Big a big gap between the diversified um, valuation and all the mainly Permian pure plays, and now that's all you know really normalized or has that that premiums collapsed. And so, you know, is is the go forward something about maybe just a more basin level or geographic diversification of the portfolio? You know, one of the better performers I think throughout all this has been Conoco Phillips. You know, it's a big scale player and it's right diversified. So it's, you know, it's something to ponder, I guess. Well, hey, one thing before we leave public companies though, um, quick, quick take on folks on this is it's been my, I've never been a public guy, so I never really read earnings releases, but I've at least tried to and all seems like, CapEx comes in below expectations, production slightly higher. You get rewarded. The opposite, you're getting penalized. That's what it felt like this season. Yeah, I think we characterize it as a tightrope, right? And you're, we talked about Devin last week. There was disappointing in the rearview mirror results, and then I think a, a fairly um, tepid outlook from a CapEx mm -hmm. and and. You know what? What does that provide proportionally in terms of growth, and that gets you punished? Where you know, whatever shoe's going to drop next? I mean, we've had the kind of salad days of huge cash flows and big outperformance. Um, in fact, last two years of outperformance, so it's getting a little more, a little more tedious, I guess. And um, there's a big macro backdrop that that I think is driving some of this too. I mean, Mark, how many management teams have survived the, hey, we don't care about the core, we're not playing the quarterly game, we're playing the long game, <laughs> and that, that never it, seems to work it, out. It's like politics. There is no long-term in politics. Right, So that's right. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think given how erratic and how volatile the trading has been in the group, you, you just, hmm. you got to be, I used to say in my monthly updates, around these issues to LPs, look, you, all of these fundamentals, and we're very principled and very deep on the fundamentals, but you got to respect the trade. And mm. now now more so than ever. And and so um, well, one, one follow-up comment about Pioneer, I would say that, you know, they do have a massive position in the Midland Basin. And so to suggest that there's kind of urgent inventory issues, I guess we'll have to wait. Yeah. To see the data, I just think there's very, uh, really disciplined portfolio and CapEx allocation going on right now and a lot of high grading, which. Well, and if they don't have inventory, we're all just hosed. That's, 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 yeah, that's, well, that's the other, that's the other the thing one. that's. No, we just yeah. need to put a, a solar on your roof. You'll be fine. The, the other thing that's <laughs> been in the middle of all this, at least year to date, we've built DOE inventories like 58 million barrels. It's a lot. Yeah, that is a lot. So makes makes you a little queasy. Exactly. All right, Colin, you're a F-150 boy. <laughs> so the Lightning, a little bit of a negative spotlight by Bloomberg. Damn. Class action lawsuit down in Brazil, 11,000 people. Turns out a mine was contaminating the environment. Dirty aluminum. 
Yikes. What say you? I mean, this isn't just a problem for Ford. This is a problem for every consumer electronic tech company out there. You know, who was it that was on Joe Rogan's podcast talking about <clears throat> the cobalt mines and Siddharth Kara? Essentially, you know, these large corporations, they think that their supply chains are clean. But what happens at a local level is that you have, you know, whether it's lithium or cobalt, they kind of feed into a larger system. And so from Ford's eyes or Apple's eyes, whoever it may be, they can say, oh, our supply chain's clean and certified. You know, we don't have any artisanal miners or anything, anything like that. Um, but I think that this is a huge risk for a lot of companies about what's actually happening in, in those mines. Interestingly, the, the, I guess the spotlight has mostly been on, and, and you read the Bloomberg piece, it's really good. And quite frankly, I was a little surprised. Um, that How good it was? It came from Bloomberg. <laughs> and Norse Kidro is actually the ultimate owner of the bauxite alumina refinery in yep. a place called Alunorte, which is a mere <clears throat> 800 mile ride up the Amazon, U turning in the Atlantic and back down into the to the refinery port at Alanorte. And so they're doing bauxite processing at high pressures and a lot of caustic chemicals and temperatures and discharges and things related to that. And so, you know, it 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 raises it raises some issues. Uh the litigation couldn't get any traction in Brazil, so they took it to the to the actually it's going to be I guess, argued in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. So, Here, court of the world. So here's the deal on this. And I have, this was tinfoil hat maybe six to nine months ago, but I've talked myself into this as true. When you look at the carbon footprint of an internal combustion engine, we know exactly what that is, right? We've Pretty been much. building those for yeah. years. We know emission standards, all that. I don't know that we have the greatest handle on electric vehicles and what the actual carbon footprint is. Now, Volvo did something on this, a deep dive, put it on their website, and I'll get this somewhat close because I can't remember it exactly, but it's like the breakover for electric vehicles, depending on your source of generation of the electricity, is like 70,000 to 90,000 miles. So it's yeah, not right. a no-brainer. It's not like, you know, day three of it out running around. It's better for the environment and all. So here is my take, and I actually really believe this, is what the government is doing is they – because the IRA has gone all in on electric vehicles, all right? In. I mean, they have said, we're, we're not going to say we want lower emissions, market, you go figure it out. They have said, we want electric vehicles. They've got to be manufactured here. What this is, is right now the way we finance the roads is a gasoline tax, right. whatever it is. If we go to electric vehicles, you can't do a gasoline tax. And what they're going to have to do is track how many miles you drill or drive. Absolutely. So we will, we will go to a model where it's dollar per mile driven is your tax because they want a device on your car so they can track us. They, are, they already know. There is a device on your car. It's called your phone. Yeah, no, well, well, that's, that's true. What, it, it's not even that's not even EV thing. Like my Toyota Camry gas car has that. Like it has a kill switch. 
right. where someone can, you know, activate it. Um, if my car, by the way, EVs so. are heavier, so they're worse for the road. Yeah, like, yeah. like the Lightning is thirty-five percent heavier than it's. I didn't get to look into this article, but is Ford being sued? No, Ford or no. Ford, Ford's Ford's just the marquee name. Yeah, and just one, one little twi- interesting twist about it's the actual lithium. Uh, it's the miner that's being sued. So the MRN mine is not owned by Norse Kidro. They their current license, which they say has six to seven years of reserves left, bauxite reserves. They're currently asking it's three times the size of Manhattan. They're asking for a one third increase, so it would be four turn another Manhattan bolted on. So there's obviously deforestation that goes on, and they just yeah you know, they just mine mine the. Uh, bauxite right below the surface loaded on those vessels and then haul it over to the refinery. And there's a lot of tailings and runoff. And, you know, problem is this stuff's at elevation. Most people live downhill. But Norse Hydro is the one being sued here in this lawsuit, which yeah. is interesting because I served on a board with some Norse Hydro executives and they're Norwegian and they're seen in Norway as, a, you know, they're, they're clean tech, a clean tech company. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but but they actually run the large their large aluminum. Well, here's so here's uh, my thing on electric world. vehicles. You know, I like electric vehicles. I think that they're actually a better product in many cases than internal combustion engines. But to say that they're better for the environment, you know, just kind of you know blanket statement, I think is completely off base. Um, and so you know, you look at things like this, you know mining happening in South America and in Africa. It's just so out of sight, out of mind um, for us. But, you know, I think that we have to have a really realistic conversation about, hey, is this a better consumer product? You know, one thing I like about EVs, I love the quick acceleration. I love being able to charge in my house. I love, you know, from an environmental perspective, cleaner air quality in large cities i love less noise pollution so there's a ton of pros but is it better for climate well is it worth the trillions of dollars we're going to spend to make that shift or could we do something better with those trillions yeah i mean because i'm i'm all in favor of if you let the market decide great let it decide but we have basically said trillions and i'm going to beat my dead horse just real quick and then mark make your point is I think the electric vehicles, the justification of the dollar per mile on the tax, the routine nature, the normalizing of reporting to the government your traffic is actually a real thing. That was your original. That's your point. That's my point because I know we all have a phone. They've got to go get an order from the judge to be able to look at your phone. Now, that doesn't mean judges won't do that. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying they're going to normalize it. And we're not going to give it a second thought, and the government's going to have, oh, Chuck went here, Chuck went there. That, friend, was, that a, was my point. A friend of ours is traveling in the Middle East, and they sent a, a picture of an advertisement that you can get a chip implanted to pay for mobile payments. So it's inside of your skin, and you can scan. I'm like, this is basically where we're going. Is that's Chuck's I'm right. sorry. I'm going to be the first one with the Neuralink. I'm going to be fucking, I'm going to have Chad GPT inside my brain on a circle. Dude, I everyone. would take that for sure. But then, <laughs> but then the problem is I already, you already hear voices at night. Now you have real voices talking to you. That's why night. I sing to myself. It drowns out the voices. <laughs> Chuck's most concerned that 
about his frequency of visits to the Salina Museum. Yes, yeah, exactly. Which Being we covered. are still scheduled to go, right? One, we one, to one last little interesting point and a bit of an ironic twist on this is that 100 years ago, almost 100 years ago, Henry Ford attempted to establish a rubber plantation 150 miles south of this mine site. It failed because they didn't, you know, didn't have optimal um, plantation design, tree yeah. production, all that. So, yeah, I wish we would bring Henry Ford back. That dude is such a shark. It's way <laughs> dude, ahead of he his was. Time. Yeah, he yeah. thought we needed to have power-backed money and, yeah. and wanted to do it around the TVA dams. You know, what's interesting on this whole conversation talking about fuels and power, did y'all see this report come out from Reuters? And I think that this might have actually come out a couple of weeks ago, but I just saw it about this study that was ran on ethanol um, fuel and how it was worse for the climate than yeah, gasoline. Yeah, I, I, I'm familiar with this article. Yeah, so I thought this was really interesting. So this was a study, and it, I don't know how we didn't catch this on last week's BDE, but- Chuck pub- wasn't there. Yeah, no, Chuck, we're just, maybe we weren't carrying the team as well as we thought, but this uh, study was published uh, by the National Academy of Sciences, and I think it was actually executed by- um, the University of Wisconsin, and it was funded by National Wildlife Federation and the U.S. Department of Energy. And long story short, what they found is that ethanol is likely at least 24% more carbon intensive than gasoline due to emissions resulting from land use changes to grow corn along with uh, processing and combustion. So what's really interesting about this is you know, one of the assistant scientists on the study, uh, Dr. Tyler Lark, he was quoted as saying, corn ethanol is not a climate-friendly fuel. Now you're starting to have this like infighting because you have Jeff Cooper, the president and CEO of Renewable Fuels Association, the ethanol trade lobby, called the study completely fictional and <laughs> full of errors and arguing that the authors used the worst-case assumptions and cherry-picked data. And so now you start seeing you know, scientific community and lobby groups that you know, I'm sure it was like lobby groups back in the day that were saying ethanol was better biofuels than gasoline. And now it's just, it's kind well, of coming full circle. Corn, corn does consume disproportionately more anhydrous ammonia fertilizer as well relative to other crops. So <laughs> there, there's your natural gas connection. Shit, man. I think, wow, I think it's like 70% of the anhydrous ammonia market, but I'm, I can't remember if it was uh, Warren Buffett or Charlie... Uh, uh, Munger, Munger, um, but one of them says like not verbatim, but along the lines of like if you think that turning food into fuel is economic or good for the planet, you're an idiot. <laughs> I think that uh, no doubt they're probably there's some obviousness to that. Yeah. Um, speaking of, I w- when I was inside of the belly of a beast, I I really dove into global warming as well, and I really wanted to understand like the math, the real science, but it's like evolution. There's a few pieces in the evolution chain where are unanswered and they make some big ass guesses. So another story that just hit, we were talking about is according to NOAA, so it's government data, zero U.S. warming in 18 years per U.S. climate reference network temp stations. That's no U.S. warming despite 30% of total man-made CO2. Emissions-driven warning, warming is a hoax. What do you think? So here's my take on this is I really hate when we talk climate change and people say, oh, well, the scientists say this. 
Because I think in this world, then also you should well, you should be able to see the phenomenon. You need the scientists to say, "Oh, that's why it happened." But like the apple falls from the tree. Okay, Newton needs to tell us about gravity and explain it to us. But we can all see the apple fall. I have spent an hour and 45 minutes on this, so not a deep dive and all. But if you just look at the temperature over the last 10,000 years, I don't see it in the data. Who was recording temperature 10,000 years ago? Well, they, they say the ice Somebody. samples. They say the ice oh, samples, ice samples are, 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 are accurate. And I haven't deep dived this, so I don't want to like say this really is a statement. It's more just a question, because if you look at it, and I just sat there with a ruler and drew stuff, about 90% of the time, it's been warmer than it is right now. So you're kind of like going, okay, well, hydrocarbons have maybe been influencing stuff since, what, 1950? You know, maybe 1900, whatever. Okay. And then you, then I talked to a friend. I've got a friend that's an environmentalist lobbyist, and we always joking. <laughs> what are your people saying? Well, yeah, what do your course. people say? And her take was it's actually the rapid rise. That's worry. It's not the absolute temperature. It's if you look at the rapid rise. Well, two things come out. One, you always quote 1850, right? Because that was actually the lowest temperature of the last 10,000 years. So why not start at the bottom? But two, the slope of the line, which should be the rapid rise, seems like there are two or three other times like that in the last 10,000 years mm -hmm. where you see a line like that. So I want to deep dive this more because I just don't see it in the data well, this is what i hate about climate one you can't you can't ask the questions without being labeled a climate denier which i don't even know what climate denier means like how do you deny that there's a climate <laughs> um but there's so much information out there that um contradicts absolutely and there's a lot of noise and really trying to understand you know what's what's good information what's bad information and the thing is, is that that science, like that science is having an objective opinion to things and trying to understand data, you know, like the whole hurricane thing. You look at like, it's what everyone's like, hurricanes are becoming more frequent, more they're intense, not. but then, yeah, they're not. But <laughs> like maybe there's another story. So let me throw a story at you and maybe we'll start connecting dots on this climate thing. This is the tagline. European bosses hit easy targets for green bonuses, pay report shows. Top 50 public companies pay out the majority of rewards for carbon emission goals. So maybe there is something else about climate goals for a reason. Well, I mean, look, we've always known that ESG as a movement is a grift. Executives uh, are getting rich over this. Yeah. The... Well, the easiest one in any &E and p that we've seen is, you know, the cessation or elimination of certain big percentages of routine flaring. I mean, routine flaring, in my experience, has been because of what has transpired or what did transpire kind of willy-nilly, getting out ahead with your drilling completion and wanting to bring wells online, you're flaring. Yeah. Well, that's, that's solvable through better planning and logistics execution. You know, and, and so how, how does Exxon cease it immediately, right? Yeah. It's a value product. I, <clears throat> I just. You know, I, I like. But but to finish the point, you're, you're seeing executive compensation get rewarded for, I think, you know, routine flaring uh, reduction or elimination. You know, <laughs> Coley, isn't that. Isn't Coley that Cabinets a, over at Crusoe, I think is one of. <clears throat> 
the most um, well thought out people that I get to talk to. And he's a geologist by background. He's a co-founder of Crusoe Energy, which mines Bitcoin now. And the way that he looks at things, he looks at things from the intersection of energy, economics, climate. And I was hanging out with him one time at one of our events in Austin. And he's like, you know, he's like, I look at climate change. He said what you just said. He's like, I look at it. The, the concern is not overall temperature, but it's the rapid change in temperature. And he's like, I went and studied the geology. And that's where his whole basis of uh, climate comes from is understanding the rock, which I just thought was super fascinating. But then you don't have geologists. Uh, I'm not going to say this guy's name out loud. He'd be fucking pissed at me. But um, he's a geologist and he's the founder of a uh, um, climate tech company that gets to really play into that. And I was talking to him one day and he's like, all this shit in the IPCC report. He's like, there's so much bullshit science in that. And he's just like going off on the science that is used as the foundation. And I was talking to him. I was like, yeah, you know, sometimes I just kind of want to go back to like, I want to go to university as like one, because I like learning, but two, like, I hate people coming back at me and saying, no, you're not a scientist. You can't have an opinion on this. And his response was like, it doesn't fucking matter. He's like, they don't care if you're a scientist. He's like, I'm a scientist. He's like, they don't care about my opinion. And I think that that's dangerous as hell when you have scientists that are afraid to even put their opinion out there because it goes against the narrative. The I narrative. Mean, so, I, so there's something called the Soho forum, which is a libertarian debate platform and two scientists that are on polar opposites, Andrew Dessler from Texas A&M and Steve Coonan, who wrote unsettled, but I think most of you read debated at the Soho forum last fall. I think it's worth going to take a look. It's off of embargo and probably has been for a while uh, available on YouTube, but that's a fascinating conversation and debate. Both of them are on Joe Rogan's podcast. That's what spurred that, that individually, debate, right? but they're, yeah. they're in the same, uh, in the same room. And yeah. it, I mean, it, it gets really, it gets really interesting. I think for me, you know, I'm a surfer, so I spent a lot of time in the ocean and growing up in Galveston, the best beach in the world, <laughs> because every beach is awesome. Only if you've never been to another beach, but yeah, <laughs> that's why. Um, but I used to, I grew up, you know, taking lighter fluid down to the beach because when you get in the water, you come out with tar and, yeah. and then you see all this plastic waste. And one of my buddies started, uh, a ocean plastic recycling business, um, an awareness company. Um, you know, the reality is like, there is a lot of shit and and we do a lot of bad things to the planet that we shouldn't do. Right. And that's the reality. I mean, you know, the oil and gas industry gets really a bad sort of everyone looks at them as the bad bad people, but if you kind of talk to people including even our friend Mark here from Exxon, who they're all the, they're the world's worst people on the planet because they just want to make money and kill everybody. Yeah. But that's not real but that's not reality. You meet them they're like they're real people. Yeah. You know? the, uh, uh, they care about the environment well i mean this kind of loops back into a story i don't know if y'all saw this but diamondback invested 20 million dollars into a clean fuel company verde which i thought was really interesting that diamondback was investing in that i actually saw a funny tweet on twitter someone's like god damn it, i gotta sell my stock now all this shit loses money <laughs> <laughs> no there's uh, some money to be made in the but, clean fuels um i was just looking up verde clean fuels because i'm not familiar with them and they make renewable gasoline and so 
they have a technology that turns waste feedstocks, namely biomass, municipal, solid waste, and renewable natural gas into gasoline or methanol. And so my assumption here is that- It's good business. I think uh, if you can do it right, especially around California, because that's because of the- Yeah. Yeah. So my assumption is that Diamondback is investing into them and probably providing some engineering around uh, methane and maybe even methane as a feedstock. Um to to work with so. i mean i think you know energy companies in general in my mind are like hollywood it's like they're 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 the they're banking deals or deal makers and mm -hmm. in some ways i've sort of gone back and forth mark we're talking earlier and chuck about are you are you a, a pure play or not but in some ways i'm like man you're just trying to keep a business and outperform your competitors and one way to do that is find businesses that perform well. I mean, clean fuels is people are paying a premium for it. Um, That's what I've always said about oil and gas. When I talk to people on climate, it's like oil and gas companies are the most capitalistic people you'll ever meet. If they can go make money in renewables or clean fuels, they will. It's I've like, done it's a few clean fuel deals and I've looked at probably every one on the market. Um, it's a good business. There's some money to be made if yeah. you can actually execute on the technology. Yeah. There are buyers out there willing to pay premium. Well, I think the real question is what's what's the commercialization timeline? That's and right. When can you get to scale where it starts to impact or compete with other opportunities in your portfolio? And right now, you know, what we're seeing is a very hyper intensive focus on return of capital from the core business of the upstream in particular. And, you know, the the most recent example of maybe taking a little bit of pause is BP ta tapping the brakes. Now they've been the most aggressive in terms of diving headlong and committing big capital today into things like wind and solar. Right. So that's got to generate a return. And if it's not, it's though. back to the short-term, long-term conversation. And right. I think what you're seeing is a response to that ever growing pressure to, to catch up from a, an equity performance standpoint, for example. You know, you know what Paul Sankey said? He told his wife, you know, 20 some odd years ago, just go buy organics, buy it every time. So that way it mm -hmm. becomes the standard and all. And I do feel that vibe these days in terms of like clean fuel that you're having people just say, go buy it, even if it costs more because it's right. the right thing to do. So there might there might be some uh, some critical mass there. I, I wish somebody had told me that about coal stocks a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Speaking of clean fuels, the rig count was down seven. Biggest drop in a month. It was all oil directed. We didn't see natural gas directed rigs fall up, fall off. Sitting there. I mean, we have a two handle on natural gas, right? What's going on? Last I looked, it was closer to three. So it rallied a little bit. I think it was at two and a quarter when we met last week. So I don't know. There's there's all kinds of noise in the week to week number, but you know, Baker Hughes came out last week, and I, I was just a little surprised to see that out of seven, which was the biggest drop in a month, whatever that that really means, we're still at an overall rig activity level of I think fifty, almost sixteen percent over last year. So, my my kind of puzzlement is when are we going to see if we're going to see the collapse in in gas directed activity, which we haven't seen it may have something to do with you know high spec rigs are hard to come by that market's tight do they move out of gas directed drilling into oil directed drilling are there term contracts you know some of these deeper Haynesville wells or longer cycle time are 
operators locked up on term that that hasn't rolled off yet. So I mean, it would have a been. number of reasons. I, I just think it raises a larger issue of of how producers that are you know gas focused are going to respond if you know if this persists, or are they you know are they betting on a you know not a repeat of this past winter knowing right. that. Well, there was a, I mean, it was, it, I would have, if I was a CEO, you know, last year, $9 natural gas, it would have been pretty easy to talk me into a three-year rig contract in the face of inflation and me going, oh, I can lock my prices for three years and inflation's running at 10%, probably in the oil fluid, it's 25. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if all those rigs are under long-term contracts and then you get into what's the break clause and okay, maybe I'm running in place at 250 or 275 gas, but, you know. It'd so be interesting it. to know, if like, you know, traders trade, you know, they, they trade barges. And, I mean, the traders are always trying to make the markets whole. Do traders trade rigs? That'd be interesting. No, it's like a bare-knuckle fight. You want to cancel the contract. That's right. And you're threatening to sue each other. And, yeah. By the way, for the show. Or, or you send a letter to 3,000 oil field service providers that Aubrey used to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you will. You will. You will drop your prices. <laughs> you will. So we had a, uh, you just see my, I know Mark saw my TikTok on the Apple iPhone clean energy God. power. I just told uh, Kirk about it too. Um, I was kind of, I had some guy that's, he's, I was reading my computer. He's kind of pissed off about it. Doesn't think that I'm portraying it accurately, but I am. Fuck him. Um, <laughs> Portray <but>, away. <laughs> so this um, there's a setting on your iPhone. If you have the new iPhone software update, uh, 16 point whatever, if you go to settings, battery, battery health, there's a toggle switch for clean energy charging. And essentially what this clean energy charging is, is Apple looks at where you live, um, the time that you charge your phone, and they try to optimize charging to only charge when there's clean energy available on the grid. I haven't been able to find like what that actually means. That's a black box of, you know, yeah, that's maybe 30%. hard for Apple to figure out yeah. based on location. Yeah. I wonder in their emissions accounting how much credit they're getting, That's if any. That's Executive bonuses, yeah. they're, baby. They're getting some carbon credits for this for sure. But what it ends up doing, I mean, if you look at electricity production in the United States, I mean, 60% of it comes from fossil fuels. You know, Mark's up on I'm MISO, on MISO. <laughs> which is all coal and natural gas. He'll never get a charged phone, right? And so what it's caused is you go plug in your phone and you have it plugged in for four hours. You go pull it off and it's only 25% charged. And you're like, what the fuck's going on? And so I first saw this on Twitter. Someone posted about it and then I went and made a TikTok on it and you know, one of my friends that's in climate tech, he posted about it and he's like, I like to see that Apple is coming out with software and solutions that does that, but I don't agree with making it the default method because all it's going to do is piss people off. Colin, so, let, me so, go, so, let me go full circle of where this is going. So let's go back to Chuck's point. So Colin turns off the climate piece. Colin has an EV. Apple and Tesla decide that Colin has wasted too much. He's burned too much carbon last month. You're not going to get charged car nor phone for the next 30 days. They're tracking us. Apple's tracking us. Tesla's tracking us. Eventually, they're going to give you a credit a carbon score. Yeah. And if you're not under a certain number, 
you're not getting charged, bro. Is this is this, uh, this under the umbrella of consequences for social credit scores? Exactly. They already do this well, in Canada. You know, Stacy posted receipts of her power bills, and there's a carbon credit on individuals in Canada, and it's a line item. <laughs> and you know what they're going to- Not a carbon credit, sorry, a carbon tax. And you know what they're going to do? It's like every freaking time you go above a certain level, they're going to jam that damn U2 album back on <laughs> Hell yes, they we're, are. We're dropping That was like YouTube. the worst U2 album ever. <laughs> now, now I get why I had to spend another $20. I got sold. I just upgraded to a 14 Pro Max, whatever, and I won't say from what, but I've gone from two lens poor to- Three lens. No, it was like a magnet. You were like on four, weren't you? It was like a magnet <laughs> no, two no. There's good news. There's at least there's at least twice that I'm not my dad. <laughs> there's good news and bad news about the carbon tax. If you fly public, you're fucked because they can track how much gas sure. you burn. Yeah. If you fly private, you're too important. So pri- <laughs> if you fly private, and it doesn't get counted. Yeah. So just just know that. The so, uh, and so you can I charge. On, why you can, I needed an excel a charge accelerator that I paid twenty bucks for that the. You do now. Yeah, yeah I was store. thinking about. It's probably related to the the green setting. Yeah, I have a friend up in Boston, and he's very climate. Um, I want to say he's very climate doomsdayer, but he's actually kind of got pragmatic about oil and gas. And anyways, he was uh, posting about how like he could just not believe that there wasn't a winter up in Boston this year, and that scares that scares him. And I was actually thinking about it. I was like. I'd much rather be dealing with global warming than global cooling because humans undoubtedly, I mean, this is factual that we have much easier of a time surviving in warmer weather than ask we do your Boston guy, weather. because I have a house up in the Northeast is in Nantucket that the two, two or three winters ago, the freaking ice in the ocean, I mean, yeah. there's ice everywhere. So I mean, <laughs> what is he talking? What is he worried about? But I just find it like funny. I'm like, you don't like summers, bro? Like, you want those cold winters? Dude, like, I can't well, help but staring to, at to, to, to that point. New, have y'all seen this? Oh, is this the Chuck is Jesus? I mean, no, AI. that's Brad Pitt. I mean, Chuck we, is Brad is this, Pitt. Is this Chuck's new photo? I'm that sorry, needs to but go that does not give DVD. off the Brad Pitt vibe. I keep looking off, at it. And I'm like, man, what's the reface? That, that gives guy, like an even more Western whitewashed version of Jesus. <laughs> I can't stop looking at it. It's like it, it, you can't stop looking at it. Uh, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't even going to attempt to sit in that chair this yeah. week. You know, the irony of the whole thing is that U2, U2 album was actually called Songs of Innocence. And now they're sitting there jamming this back on us. I want to hit something else yep. real quick related Lay to this us. natural gas and emissions. And um, EPA reported last week that for 2022 – Overall, power generation-related emissions were down 2%, primarily as a result of coal-to-gas switching. And all the offenders were down across the board from NOx to SOx to CO2 to mercury. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing another, albeit one-year, data point where a big shift in the generation stack, natural gas, you know, yeah. affecting absolute reduction. Oh, and despite the fact that, uh, power demand overall in the U.S. was up 2% year over year. So, uh, you know, natural gas doing its thing in terms of of at least on the CO2 side, which seems to be front and center, um, proving again that our longer track record of affecting the substitution has a lot of benefit for absolute emissions <clears throat> reduction. 
So we can close the show with two nuggets from the energy policy draft. One, you went number one drafting and you took natural gas. I didn't think it was going to be a dollar though. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But you took it and you made a, uh, you, uh, you made a quite eloquent case on why it should be number one. And I think we all agreed with that. And the other funny thing that applies to what we were talking about today and Colin, to your point about people wanting summer, David Ramsen Wood said on the policy draft, he said, man, if I was Trudeau, I'd put a coal plant on every single corner. I'd raise the temperature of the planet five degrees because it might make Canada bearable. No, 100%. (laughs) I put out a tweet last week. I said, assuming that humans develop the technology to control atmospheric gas concentration, who gets to determine what the ideal concentration is? Because you got to think, a country like Russia would love to be thawed out and have access to warm water natural resources. Yeah, so Uh you'll never have consensus on what optimal is. Well, there there are net just shy of 200,000 fewer deaths related to cold and heat because of a warming of colder regions, right? So that that's all part of this, you know. Climate, Are you saying there's global warming? Climate-related deaths, you know, have dropped precipitously in the last century, and that's an adaptation thing more than anything. But, um, you know, cold is much worse for – I, I didn't know. I think you talked about it a few podcasts, several podcasts ago about, you know, you, you got real hypothermia concerns for the elderly when, you know, things drop to 55 degrees. Yeah. So hypothermia I, is a funny thing because you never think about it, but like the Gulf of Mexico, it's warm wa- water, 70 degrees plus. But you, if you have to jump off of a ship and you're out in 70 degree plus water, you'll get hypothermia because quick. it's below body temperature, right? So, so, so we used to wear yeah. We used to wear these safety orange uh, Mustang suits when we flew around Prince William Sound and they weren't immersion suits. So they were not, you know, they were not sealed. Why are they orange? Well, it makes you easier to spot. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and to bring it all back to me, because that's what I like to do. Tell your ride. Skiing was much more pleasant Sunday afternoon when it was warm, the sun was out, than it was on Saturday. It was cold. Yeah. It was nasty. It was rainy, kind of. Yeah. Can't have the snow without the cold. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so who do we got for finger of the week? Mark, you're up. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna run out of patience with baseball examples, but I was slightly under the weather for unknown reasons this weekend. So I took advantage of the fact that there was actually live spring training baseball being televised. And it was my first experience with the new pitch clock in major league baseball, which with no runners on base pitcher has to deliver the pitch between the time he receives the ball back from the catcher or the umpire within 15 seconds, or he has to start toward the plate. The batter has to be in the box and set. Uh, with eight seconds left on the clock. We actually had a spring training game in the bottom of the ninth decided by a clock violation. And they had the clock in within view of side view of the plate. And I just felt that kind of distraction anxiety. And I'm the first to tell you that I love the evolution of analytics and data and how it's made the game so much better and much more objective and measurable. But 
I don't need kind of clock anxiety for, um, for America's pastime, right? <laughs> Which historically has never had a clock. Well, right. And baseball, I'll say this, and I say this with all due respect because I know you love for it. It's boring as shit. This isn't going to help. This isn't going <laughs> to unboring baseball, but. Well, yeah. that's, that's, I mean, some of these games are lasting barely two hours, which is really, really quick. Yeah. When the average game last year was three, some three eighteen or something like that, this knocks a good 30, 40 minutes off of it. Oh, wow. Now think about the, uh, the commercial impact revenue impact. You're talking about less sponsorship eyeball time. You're probably reticent to go <clears throat> to the concession because you're going to miss an inning or two. If you're a baseball fan, by the way, it is the hardest sport in the world. So, oh. I play a game. It's called golf, but I would Mal argue Mal that it Mal might does, be a little harder. doesn't move. All right. You're right. So it was good to have Chuck back. I'm glad he uh, <laughs> took the time to record with us um, and grace us with his presence. No but doubt. We'll be Amen. back. We'll be back next week. Uh, episodes, just so you know, you know, we, we moved from the live format. So episodes will be live Tuesday morning, six o'clock. So if you're driving to the office, you're at the gym working out and you want to hear our beautiful voices in your ear, just... Check us out. We'll be on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, gents. Good hanging out with you. We'll catch you. Good to have the full crew back. Yeah. Full crew back. We'll catch y'all next week.